<clears throat> All right, suppose there is a Christian couple who walks out to their mailbox and they receive a wedding invitation. And the wedding invitation reads, Come celebrate our wedding. Come celebrate us. Come celebrate with us this June. I'm going to be married. Hope you attend and celebrate our special day. From Jacob and Michael. This is a same-sex wedding, and the Christian couple cannot, in good conscience, attend the wedding, because it would be, in their view, an act of supporting something that twists and perverts God's intentions for marriage. And so they say they can't attend, they reject attending, but they say, we, we love you both, Jacob and Michael. We want the best for you. We just don't think this is God's plan for marriage and for human sexuality. And, and so I hope you understand it's because of our commitment to Jesus Christ that we're saying these things. We want the best for you, though. Well, Jacob and Michael <clears throat> do not take kindly to this kind of response. And they say, you are a false Christian. I thought Christianity was about love. Didn't Christ say to love your neighbor as yourself? You are evil and you're anti-love and this is wicked and you are against everything that unites people together in harmony with one another. And you are stupid and narrow for believing such old and outdated things. And you are evil. And the whole country thinks so. And you're in the wrong direction of history. What should this Christian couple do at this point. I mean, we're called to be salt and light so that we should do good works and other men might see it and give glory to God. Well, I think this Christian couple should understand the words that Jesus himself says in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Brothers and sisters, you and I, if we have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, are elect of God, but we are exiles in a world that is completely opposed to what we believe in and what we hold to be true. We are starting now the book of 1 Peter. And Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. 
to Christians who are dispersed throughout five Roman provinces in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And in this situation, the, the background of 1 Peter is brewing hostility in the Roman Empire against Christians. The dark clouds are forming against Christianity. And this is written probably in the early 60s AD, right before persecution reached its fever pitch when Christians would be imprisoned or killed through the command of Nero. Right now, it is just before that kind of persecution. And the shape that the persecution has taken is one of social um, ostracization and hostility in the culture. And the Christians are starting to be seen as stupid and they are maligned for their beliefs in Jesus and their values, which go completely contrary to the values of the world. If you look at 1 Peter 4, 3-4, we kind of see a taste of what they're going through. The Apostle Peter says, For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They malign you. You are stupid for holding these values and wicked. They malign you. I remember I was having a conversation with... Uh, a blood relative, not, not, not a relative of mine, who is not a Christian, and we're talking about abortion, which is another hot topic issue. And um, I was just telling them that God is a God of life. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, you are everything I pray my grandchildren will never be. See, Christian values will never sit comfortably in a lost and dying world. So Peter is writing in a time of persecution that is very similar to what we're entering into today. Where Christianity is no longer the culturally accepted norm in our society. And even those who believe they're Christians think that what we believe is outdated and old and even contrary to Jesus. But as we read the scripture, as we hear the words of Jesus, as we try to understand these things humbly, without being proud, without wanting a fight, without wanting to argue or prove ourselves right, we see that we can't affirm a same-sex marriage and we can't affirm abortion. God is a God of life. 
And so I think the, the message of First Peter that we're going to spend about a few months on is to understand that Christians have entered into Christ's suffering. And we are going to participate in Christ's suffering because of what we believe and the values we hold. And as Christians, you must understand that the model of suffering is the way Jesus Christ himself suffered. And the anchor of your hope is Christ's resurrection. And even though a lost and dying world will malign and hate you and think you are stupid and wicked, we should have the same exact attitude that Christ had when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So today we're just going to I'm just going to introduce the book of First Peter with the two ver with the first two verses. I thought I was going to get through the first seven, but we're just going to do the first two verses a day because it is packed full of ultimate realities. So read with me, if you would. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontius. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, I just ask right now, for your word to be strong. Please help me in my weakness. Get me out of the way. May this not be a performance, but something that comes from a true heart. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, just the first two verses, Peter's, Peter opens his letter by lifting the eyes of the congregations to ultimate realities. There are unseen truths and realities that we must, as Christians, attach our minds and our hopes to. And that is the source of great comfort. Not what's happening here. Our hope is not the next president. It's not Christian nationalism. It's, not, it's nothing social. It's what God is doing and what he promises to do. Two questions I want to ask today and answer. Number one, why should we listen to Peter? Number two, what realities does he lift our eyes to exactly? So number one, we're about to spend five months, or four months maybe, listening to Peter tell you what to think and how to be married and what to do and what to feel. Why should you listen to this man, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, he is just a man. First of all, you need to know that. He is just a man, but he is a very unique man. He was a very unique man in God's plan redemption. Peter was a Galilean fisherman 
who was called to follow Christ on the spot. We read in Matthew 4, 18-20, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. What a picture of discipleship. Leaving everything you have immediately and following Jesus Christ. Later on in Peter's discipleship to Jesus Christ, Peter was appointed as an apostle. We read in Mark 3, 13 through 16, that Jesus went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send him out, send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, is the first one mentioned. So Peter, called by Jesus Christ to be a disciple, then made an apostle, that is, one of the twelve unique disciples who would follow Jesus with power and authority that comes from Christ himself. And then, Peter is not only an apostle, but we, we see that he is also the lead apostle. This is from Matthew 16, 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Peter is the Greek for rock, Petros. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That is a lot of authority. And it's very interesting that in the book of Acts we see Peter using the keys of the kingdom, I, I believe. When in Acts 2 he preaches in Jerusalem and 3,000 Jews are saved and receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter in Acts chapter 8 brings the gospel to the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then in Acts chapter 10 he brings the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile. And so the keys of the kingdom have then been opened from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now the ends of the earth through the preaching of the gospel by Peter. Now we know 
that Peter was an imperfect man. You can read about that in the Gospels and Galatians. He was not perfect, but he was given unique authority when proclaiming the message of Christ. And we know that he was crucified upside down for his ministry, and he died as a martyr, just as Jesus told him he would. So, why should you listen to Peter? Even though he doesn't say things you... Even though he's going to say things you might not like or might not naturally agree with, why should you listen to Peter? He was just a man. He was an imperfect man, but he was also the man who called, whom God... who Jesus called to be a disciple. He was elevated to be an apostle. He was given unique authority, and he preached... The message of Jesus Christ with the power of Jesus Christ working through him. And he has writing here with apostolic authority under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's why you should listen to Peter for the next three to four months. Jesus says of the apostles in Matthew 10.40, Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So if you want to receive God, the Father, receive Jesus Christ. If you want to receive Jesus Christ, receive the Apostles' message. What is 1 Peter? The book written by Peter to the churches. And we are a church. So that's why you should listen to the Apostle Peter for the next few months. And it is so relevant for our day and age. So you have someone speaking with the authority of God in 1 Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking to churches of Christians who are being socially ostracized for their beliefs and maligned for their commitment to Christ. That is increasingly what we are facing in our day and age. So... That's why you should listen to Peter. That's why I listen to Peter. Next question is, what realities does Peter lift our eyes to see? One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Now, the people of God have always needed their eyes to be lifted to realities that they cannot naturally see. Or because we're so fixated on what is happening day to day, or what's happening in the news, we constantly needed, need to lift our eyes to ultimate things. There are ultimate things that are much bigger, much more glorious, much more powerful than the enemy and the sorrows of this present day. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is when Elisha and his squire were in a small city with walls, but the king of Syria had surrounded that city with an army that was sure to kill Elisha and his squire. And Elisha is standing there bold as a lion, unflinching as he looks out on a dark day and surrounding him 
are thousands of soldiers ready to kill him and his servant. And the servant boy says, what are we going to do? Where can we go? We're trapped in this city. And Elijah prays and he says, oh Lord, open his eyes. And at that moment, the squire, his eyes were opened by the Lord and he saw around the surrounding mountainside a host of angels on horses surrounding the enemy that was surrounding them. And God delivered them. I believe today, when we're pummeled by the news, pummeled by anti-Christ-likeness, we need to lift our eyes to ultimate things. Lift your eyes to ultimate things. So what are these ultimate things that the Apostle Peter lifts their eyes to and our eyes to? Number one, he lifts our eyes to ultimate theological realities. Listen to this passage again. He writes to elect exiles. So, the doctrine of election. According to the foreknowledge of God. In the sanctification of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. That's a lot of theology packed into one sentence. Right? You have election, foreknowledge, sanctification, discipleship, and atonement. And if you hadn't seen it yet, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, jammed in to one sentence to greet people. I think this shows us First of all, that the Apostles' encouragement and exhortation is never just good advice coming from themselves. Their teaching is rooted in eternal theological truths which provide the basis for what you should think, feel, and do. The literary way to put that is the imperative is based on the indicative or what to do is based on what is true. Paul, in the book of Romans, he writes 11 chapters of theology before he gives four chapters of Christian living. He talks about sin and one through three, he talks about God's covenant with Abraham and the fact that we are children of Abraham in chapters 4 through 5. In chapters 6 through 8, he talks about union with Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. In chapters 9 through 11, he talks about God's predestination and the issue of Israel and the church. And then, and only then, does he get on to living, which is, which is exceedingly important. But it's not like he's grabbing ideas out of thin air and say, oh, well, you should probably do this stuff. Christian living is always based on theological truth. So, in this passage, Peter talks about a God-centered, pre-temporal, 
blood-bought reality that Christians should embrace and lift their eyes to see in the midst of a lost and dying world. So he starts with theology. And I believe this is the prob this shows us or highlights the problem of doctrineless churches today. A church, a doctrineless church is a kind of church that would say, well, we just believe in Jesus. My question to them would be, what is it about Jesus that you believe? Doctrine slash theology is the content of your belief. And there are many mainline churches today that would say Jesus was a good man. He might be a wise sage. He was unfortunately killed by the Romans and he started a movement of love. That is not the theology that we believe. Our doctrine. See, we will say we believe in Jesus. Just like the mainline churches will say we believe in Jesus. But we fill the content of that sentence with different meaning, biblical meaning. So we don't just believe Jesus was a good man. We believe he is God in the flesh. We don't just believe he's a wise sage, but that he came to live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And he rose again. And we don't believe that he just started a movement, but we believe that he has offered us eternal life and a kingdom that will not pass away. And eternal life is now in session, and you can enter it now. Jude, Jesus' brother, writes a letter in the New Testament, and he says, earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints. Elders, and by God's grace, we will have elders in this church within a year, year and a half. Elders must have a grasp on essential doctrinal and theological truths. We read in Titus 1.9, when Paul is giving the qualification for elders, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy, trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder must be able to tell us what must I do to be saved. They must be able to explain the problem of sin, the need for Christ's death. Why grace is not an excuse to sin in life. What is our hope and the promises that we're clinging towards? What faith is? What discipleship is? That's why I, we haven't just called the men's group men's group. We've called it intentionally men's theological focus group. Because I want to get right out in front that in men's group we're not just doing guy stuff, you know, spitting and and you're comparing muscles and, and eating and smoking cigars. and We're not just doing man stuff. We're focusing on theology in men's group, right? 
Now, I don't mind men's stuff. All right? All right, I don't mind men's stuff at all. I can shoot a bow and arrow better than all of you. So, men's theological focus group. So, my point is this, is that real Christian instruction is always based on theological and doctrinal truths. And any sermon or Bible study or counseling session that we give in this church, when we do it, we're not just grabbing ideas from midair and saying, well, that sounds like a good thing to do. What we're doing here in our church, when we preach, teach, counsel, what we're doing is we don't start from nowhere and then go to the person. We start from somewhere and bring it to the people. And that somewhere is the eternal truths that have been revealed by God and believed by Christians, written in the Word. So it's the basis for what we do as a church. So the integrity, the integrity of any teaching or preaching is based upon whether or not it is grounded in a truth that God has revealed to us. I have no authority up here. My only authority is based upon this text, the Word of God. And it's in virtue of me speaking about this text accurately that my words have authority. I have no authority in myself. Now, I always, you can't say everything in every sermon, right? <laughs> but I, I must say that even though we cling to eternal doctrinal and theological truths, there have been many churches that, and many Christians, because they're excited about theology, because they're excited about doctrine, constantly are dividing over, the, over minutia. And even getting angry at one another. And in this church, we don't that, that does not fly here. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll debate one another. We'll even argue with one another a little bit. But we won't, it won't be a dividing factor. That Mark talk, touched on this last week. And sometimes we define ourselves by our divisions. that we're Calvinists. No, we're Christians. Right? Or we're Arminians. No, we're Christians. So even though we should have an opinion, if you read, if you read the Bible, you're going to form an opinion on something. And there are truths that we need to fight over and divide over. But the aim of our charge, the Apostle Paul said, is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so if your doctrinal position is not rooted in a, in a posture of love, then we've constantly missed the point. If our disagreement with the world is not rooted in a posture of love, then we've missed the, the point.
of following Jesus. I, I am tempted to say more about doctrine, because you know I love doctrine and theology, but we must move on. All right, so you good? Doctrine is good. It's important. There are some truths to divide over, but we in this church will not make it the bread and butter. I will say one more thing. Um, I've given you this before by Gavin Ortland. There are doctrines to debate. There are doctrines to decide. There are doctrines to divide over. And there are doctrines to die for. And that is a good schematic for me. So in this church, we want to decide and even debate. I'll even debate with you about some things. And there are some issues we do divide over other churches. And we don't baptize infants in this church. But we love Westminster Presbyterian Church down the road. Right? But then there are doctrines to die for. Like Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And that we would die for. Okay. Next point. Is that. Not only does he. Peter begin. With theological realities. But he. Encourages. This, these congregations. To embrace. The fact that. Though they are chosen of God, they are exiles in a world that is lost and dying. He calls them to those who are elect exiles. Just in the way he greets them, frames how they should view their persecution. They are elect, that means chosen of God, and yet they are exiles in the world. That means strangers. Foreigners in the world, resident aliens. So, elect of God, chosen of God, but outcasts in the world. And it means, exiles means not merely that this is not our home, it's more than that. It means that the place in which we live is going to have a posture against us. We are elect exiles. And if you feel like an outcast sometimes, if you feel like an exile, the very reason you feel like an exile is because you were chosen of God out of these, this realm of debauchery and evil and wickedness and sin and death, and you are called into His marvelous light. So the, the reason you feel like an exile sometimes is because you are an exile. This world is not your home in that very real sense. Again, John 15, 19, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why does the world hate you? Because you've been chosen out of it and called into his marvelous light. So, brothers and sisters, we will have to live with a certain degree of social discomfort in, the, in, in our daily lives. It's just a fact that we're going to live with discomfort. 
as a Christian. Peter says, with respect to this, the living in drunkenness, orgies, or drinking parties, or lawless idolatry. Now, those are extreme examples, but they are examples. But he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So Peter is letting them know that the stream of culture is moving in one direction and we're moving in the exact other in virtue of being God's people. So, parents, I'm speaking to myself as well, how are we preparing our children to enter the world? You know, to, to get the job, that's, yes. To be a good citizen, yes, but are we, are we preparing them for the very real reality that when you enter the world, if you're going to be a Christian, you will have tribulation. You will be maligned at times. Even if you're even when you're trying to be salt and light. So don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, Peter says. So I think parents, as, as Wesley is going to be out of the house in 10 years, I, I need to prepare him for the fact that he can, he can be a great student, a great athlete, but because he's a Christian, he's going to face opposition in the lost and dying world. And that doesn't mean necessarily he has done anything wrong. It just means that we live as exiles in this world now. So, they're exiles. But even though they're exiles, they're chosen by God and for God. So he's, we are elect exiles according to, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Do you see how the Trinity is woven throughout this passage? You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When the world is created, in the beginning, God created the world, right? And how did He create the world? By speaking. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So here you have a, the Father, the Word of God, and the Spirit hovering over the water. So when God creates a universe, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there. And when God creates a people, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there. Bringing them into cooperation with the divine order. I want to go through these following phrases. Number one, according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This means that your salvation existed in the mind of God before the universe began. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That means before you were born in the womb, the Lord knew you. And what is happening to you today 
as you are persecuted, living as an exile, has no bearing on your eternal status with God, because that was before time began. And so you should take great comfort in that. Now, the, the question, theological question here is, does this mean that God foresaw that we would choose Him, or for, that He foreordained that we would choose Him? And I cannot give a full orb answer to that right now, but I will give my opinion just for a second. When it says, elect according to foreknowledge, that sure sounds like some kind of sovereign foreordination to me. Now, I, I went kicking and screaming into this view five years ago. But that sure sounds like some foreordination. In Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was called, the knowledge of God is referred to. And he says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So this shows that knowledge or foreknowledge of God means more than he knew about you, but that he knew you in an intimate, se intimate sense. So I believe that foreknowledge means something more than God foresaw that I would choose him, but he foreloved me to choose him. If you go to verse 20, I think you see the word used exactly the same way. we see that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. In that, in that verse, foreknow has to mean something more than God foresaw that it would happen. Right? Christ dying on the cross, God didn't just know about the fact that Christ would die on the cross. He foreordained that this would happen. So I believe that foreknowledge means foreordination rather than just foreseeing. If you want to talk about that? I would love to talk to you afterwards. Um, but we see that's what election is. And we see election sprinkled throughout the Bible. As many as who were appointed to eternal life believe in Acts and many other passages where God's sovereign election of a people is the explanation for why you believe in Jesus Christ. Now the the next question which half of you half of you are like, all right, good. Pastor's on my side. The other half of you are saying are asking the following question. Does that mean that God wanted some people to be damned to hell and not others. This is where your pastor is a theological unicorn, I think. Because I feel a tension in Scripture that because I'm not omniscient, I haven't fully figured out yet. But I do see election and foreordination in many passages, and I had not been able to get around that, and so I glory in it. 
But I also see, I believe, that God does not want all people or anyone to be damned and go to hell. 1 Timothy 2.4 talks about God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now you could get around that and I've seen some people painfully do so and it's thoroughly unconvincing to me. But it seems that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Does God wish that some, that some should perish? I don't think so. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I have come to this view, and I'm holding it in tension, that even though God does not want anyone to be lost, He wants all people to be saved, He has elected and foreordained for some to be saved. Now, if you'd like some more information about that, on our website, Systematic Theology 1, if you go to Resources, Systematic Theology 1, there are two classes on divine sovereignty and human responsibility in which I talk about these things. And I believe there is a middle line between Calvinism and Arminianism which provides a good explanation for these things. So, now that I've disagreed with everyone in the room, I'm going to move on and get out of this. But if, seriously, if you would like to talk about that, I'm open to it. But I hope you see that I see a tension. I feel a tension. And maybe some, some people don't feel that tension. Um, but I do. And so I hope you'll consider that. So, but the main point is you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That means your salvation is rooted in eternity past and it is not therefore affected by the persecution that you are sure to endure, even if it's just social persecution. Next, you're elected according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit. That means the Spirit places us in the realm of holiness, and God is shaping us. The, sh the Spirit is shaping us into Christ's likeness. One commentator puts it like this. Peter is saying that his readers' whole existence as chosen sojourners of the dispersion is being lived in the realm of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The unseen, unheard activity of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them, almost like a spiritual atmosphere in which they live and breathe, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, and every hardship and do a tool for his patient sanctifying work. So you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but you're elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Not just more than forgiveness, but transformation 
into Christ-likeness by the Holy Spirit, in which, so in the realm of the Holy Spirit, you and I are being shaped, our characters are being formed into greater Christ-likeness. But not only that, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Your life and my life as Christians must look different than the world. Even the demons believe that Jesus died for people's sins and rose again. But they don't worship Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. They don't obey Jesus. So the difference between our faith and the faith of demons, according to James, is that we actually obey Jesus Christ. And this has been lost in modern evangelicalism. Discipleship is about obeying Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is, go make disciples of me, Jesus said. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Get this, teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. So your life should look different. I once was going door to door evangelizing. And I was talking with somebody. And this man was not a church goer. But he said, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You know, I believe he died for my sins and I'm going to heaven. So I asked, do you, do you go to church? No, he doesn't go to church. He doesn't, he doesn't worship, spends no time in the scripture. His life had not been changed at all in virtue of his faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, well, I'm a non-worshipping Christian. There is no such thing as a non-worshipping Christian. You have been elected in sanctification for obedience to Jesus Christ. One of my, my um, tutors from afar, Dallas Willard, talked about, and I'm sure you've heard me say it, he talked about vampire Christianity, where many people today would like a little bit of Jesus' blood for forgiveness, but they don't actually want to follow him. They don't want to worship and serve him. So they're turned into vampire Christians who want to take a little bit of Christ's blood but not follow him on the hard road to discipleship. I tell you, brothers and sisters, Christianity is discipleship to Jesus Christ. It is obedience to Jesus Christ. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. This is atonement imagery. When the priest would sacrifice a lamb, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. When Moses made a covenant with the people of Israel, he sprinkled the blood on the people of Israel and set them apart. And when we place faith in Christ, we were sprinkled with his blood, which cleanses us from our sins. And so we will be imperfect in our obedience to Jesus Christ. And that's why the sprinkling of blood is so beautiful. Because when we sin, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. We went to see um, Moses. Many of you were at the Moses play up at Sight and Sound. And my, my favorite scene, I think a lot of yours, was the angel of death scene in that play. Because the Jewish people had to smear the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And when the angel of death came and threatened that doorpost with death, the blood of the lamb began to glow. Almost as if to say, you shall not pass in this house. The blood of the lamb is what protects us from sin and death. And so while we are called to obedience and discipleship to Jesus Christ, our imperfect discipleship has been washed clean and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And when you fall, and you will fail, you go to Jesus and you are sure to be forgiven. So, this is how Peter greets a people who are undergoing persecution. He doesn't get right down to the nitty-gritty and say, all right, well, you got to hide out in, in these places. Here's some practical advice for you guys to, to consider. He talks about ultimate realities. The fact that you were no, foreknown, that you've been brought into a holy realm, which explains why the world is against you. And that even though the world is in opposition to Jesus Christ, you are called to obedience to Him. And when you fail in that obedience, remember that you're sprinkled with His blood. And may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is how we lift our eyes to ultimate realities, knowing that there is a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has chosen, forgiven, and is sanctifying us in the midst of a lost and dying world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father,